Possible, possible when there's no other. 
Take your song handouts on your handout. There's a song on the back, the back of your handout. We'll start with 499. I have a home beyond the river. The back of your handout, 499. service. Uh, good turnout tonight, I should say, in the service. Welcome. Good to see everyone. Welcome all of you live stream listeners as well. Good spirit tonight. I certainly have enjoyed the fellowship. Those of you that are watching live stream, we're running just a little bit late, and there's really a simple reason for that. I've been enjoying talking to people here this evening, and so, uh, you know, I guess we could start without me, but we didn't, so... Uh, I'm having a good time. I hope that you'll have a good time tonight as well. All of you live stream listeners as well. God bless each and every one of you. Let's continue on the second verse of I have a home beyond the river. Just a little more to labor. Tell the story, watch and pray. Just a few sorrows, then to heaven we'll fly away. I have a home beyond the river, I have a mansion bright and fair. I have a home beyond the river, I will dwell with Jesus there. Oh, how sweet will be to meet them, all the ransom host above. Amen. 
broken cold, I must walk the path before me. It will someday turn to gold. I have a home beyond the river. I have a mansion right and fair. I have a home beyond the river. I will dwell with Jesus there. All right, take your song books this time and turn to page number one. Again, this is the new song for us. Page number one, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. seated. Brother Andrew Moody would like to meet with all of the Master Club leaders in the chapel after church this evening. And uh, so uh, if you are a leader leader and or helper, Brother Andrew, all right, anyone who works in the Master Club program, meet for um, meet with Brother Moody in the chapel right after church tonight. Uh, Wednesday at 7, Bible study, Master Clubs, youth group. Saturday, uh, you'll notice the correction on uh, the handout today, 8 in the morning, 8 a.m., men's prayer meeting, and then uh, at noon is street ministry, uh, widow's meeting tomorrow at 10 o'clock, 10 a.m., and uh, that'll be in the chapel, 
and then we'll be having the Lord's Supper next Sunday evening, and then just a few weeks away, April 20th through the 24th, is our annual uh, missions conference. So please make plans on being to all of the services, and I'm looking forward to a good time. We had a great meeting last month with Brother Tim Green. Just seemed like a little bit of a shot in the arm. I don't. Uh, I feel like that uh, God did something for me personally. Uh, I'm not sure if I could classify it as a revival, but it certainly was a reviving, and I appreciate that. And maybe Missions Conference will uh, help get our heart more and more toward things that matter the most, the gospel, reaching souls. And so uh, Missions Conference is a highlight of our year, so please make plans on being here, and uh, you'll, you'll be glad that you did. All right, uh, it's time for a kids' lesson. Come on down, young people. Time to put on my gospel shoes. I'm putting on my gospel shoes. Telling the world about Jesus. Giving out the good, good news. The Savior died to free us. Gonna tell it far and near. So everyone. Good evening, boys and girls. Great job. Good to see you. Asher, this is your first time, right? Time? The cops are watching, so you better behave. All right. I'm going to read a story to you out of God's Word in the book of Acts, and it's a wonderful story about a man who doesn't know Jesus as his Savior, and uh, he, he gets saved. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Anytime that you read about someone going from darkness to light, going from on their way to hell uh, to on their way to heaven. I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful story. And this is in the book of Acts, chapter number 8, and in verse number 26. Verse number 26, it says, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. Philip was also known as the evangelist. He was the person that God used to bring the good news. And he said to Philip, I want you to go down to Gaza, which is the desert. And he arose and went, and behold, there was a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This was a very important man that had traveled all the way from Ethiopia down in, I guess it would be central eastern Africa, all the way up to to Jerusalem, and he had come up to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord. And so he was a very important man. He'd been to Jerusalem. He had worshipped. And now he's in his chariot and he's riding back home to Ethiopia. And he doesn't know what God is doing, but God is sending the preacher to come and help him out. Now, here's how the story continues. It says that he was returning. He's sitting in his chariot and he's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, where he's reading is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about none other than Jesus Christ and him hanging on the cross of Calvary. Isaiah's prophecy says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, that's for us to have peace with God, rather than us being chastened for our sins or being punished for our sins, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would come and he would take that punishment for us. 
And so it says that he was chastened for our iniquities. And then the prophet said, with his stripes, that's the, the whip stripes that were placed upon our Lord by the Roman soldiers, those bloody stripes on his back. The prophet says, with those stripes, we are healed. So Jesus was wounded so that we could be healed. And that's what this Ethiopian eunuch is reading about. And then it says, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, said to Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. Now, I know chariots can go pretty fast. I don't know how fast. This one could have just been going real slow. But Philip was able to run and catch up with him. So he was going fast. I guess the Lord helped the man of God, the preacher, to run as fast as he needed to. Uh, sometimes I, I, if I need to run, I'd certainly need the Lord's help because I don't run very fast anymore. It's true. So Philip ran thither to him, and he heard him reading out of the prophet Isaiah. And he asked him a question. Does anybody know what question that Philip asked this Ethiopian eunuch, Hudson? Exactly. He said, understandest thou what thou readest? Do you, do you understand what all this means? And you know, it's kind of funny because that's exactly what the Ethiopian was thinking. I don't understand what I'm reading. So God and only God knew what was going on in the Ethiopian's heart. And then he's telling Philip, he's leading him what to ask and what to say to him. And when he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I? Except some man should guide me. Now, last Sunday, after uh, you boys and girls did the Master Club program, I talked to you just a little bit from the pulpit. And I told you that you need to be listening for the Spirit of God to speak to your heart about salvation. Salvation is a decision to receive Christ as your Savior. But it's way more than just a decision. You don't just all of a sudden decide, hey, I think I'll be saved. It's not, it's way, way more than just that. The Spirit of God has to be involved in the process because without the help of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to fully understand or grasp the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to believe that Jesus died on the cross, but it's got to be more than just believing it in our mind. We have to believe it in our heart. And so Philip began to preach to him about Jesus Christ. And as Philip is telling him about Jesus and what Jesus did for him, the Lord did something wonderful. He opened up the Ethiopian's heart. And the Ethiopian asked Philip a question. Does anybody know what the Ethiopian asked Philip? He said, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, I don't know what the Ethiopian understood about salvation, but Philip knew the right answer because Philip knew that baptism does not save anyone. And so Philip answered and he, and he said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. So Philip is saying that you have to be saved. You have to believe in Jesus with all of your heart first. And then afterward, you are baptized because baptism doesn't do the saving. But I'll tell you what does save us. And that is 
when we believe from our heart. When the Lord speaks to us and we open up our heart and we say, Yes, Lord, I want Jesus to be my Savior. It's a decision. It's receiving a gift. But boys and girls, it's something that's very, very, uh, very serious. And it takes the Spirit of God to do the work. We have the Bible. That's the message. We have the Holy Spirit. He's involved in giving us the understanding that we need. And then we have the messenger. That's the preacher. God sends men. Sometimes it's a parent that explains how to be saved. Sometimes it's a Sunday school teacher. But all of these things are part of the salvation process. And so the Ethiopian eunuch, he got saved because his heart was searching for something that he knew that he needed. Boys and girls... We all need salvation, whether we realize it or not. One of these days, people who didn't think they needed salvation, they're going to get a really, really rude awakening when they find out as they cross over into eternity that they should have taken salvation more seriously than they did. Now, God has to do the saving. The Holy Spirit has to do the work. This was the moment when God worked in the heart of this Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know how many years that he had been searching. Who knows? He might have read Isaiah chapter 53 a hundred times and continued trying to get understanding. And God may have responded to his heart's desire as he searched for salvation and sent Philip in order to preach to him. We don't know any of those things, but God does. And so God knows when you're ready. God knows how to speak to your heart. And we don't have to worry about the when. All we can control is that we allow our heart to search for the Lord. Boys and girls, if you have a desire for Jesus to be your Savior, I promise you there will be a time when the Holy Spirit of God will speak to your heart and you'll know it. I won't, no one will have to explain it to you. You'll know that God is working on my heart. It may make you sad. It may make you cry. It may make you scared. But when God speaks to your heart, you search for Him and you be just like that Ethiopian eunuch and you say, what must I do? What, what do I need to do? And you listen to God's message. You listen to God's messenger. And if you'll do that, The Bible says clearly in Romans 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'll do that from your heart, you have a promise that God will do the saving. I hope that you'll consider the things that we uh, talked about, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, and I hope that the Lord will use it in your heart and your life and that you'll seek him with all of your heart. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for these boys and girls. They were so attentive uh, this evening, and I thank you for them. Lord, I know that each one of them is a precious soul. And Lord, they're growing up so fast, and Lord, they're living in a world that, uh, Lord, uh, a lot of uncertainties. But Lord, there is one certainty that we'll all face eternity one day. And I pray that each and every one of these boys and girls will face eternity knowing that Jesus Christ is their personal Savior. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God will work in their lives and uh, make the gospel real to each and every one of them. Those that are already saved, Lord, keep them clean and pure. And Lord, raise up some servants 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless them and their parents and their homes in Jesus' name. Amen. Good job, boys and girls. You can return to your seat. All right, stand with me if you will. Take your songbooks, page 115. No one ever cared for me like Jesus, page 115. chapter number three this evening, Ephesians chapter number three. This will be our last lesson on our series of messages entitled, Dividing is the Solution to Division. We've seen a lot of different things. We've divided the different gospels. We've divided uh, the, the different people groups, the Jew, the Gentile, the church of God, uh, we've taken a look at the kingdom versus the church and many, many important pivotal, pivotal Bible truths that help us rightly divide so that we can understand the Word of God for ourselves. I, my experience in the Christian life goes all the way from when I was a fairly young boy and being in churches. And I know that when I was younger, I wasn't in a Bible-believing church like this. Uh, the Bible was believed, but they didn't necessarily know which Bible that they believed. And so a lot of times, any doctrinal or theological study was basically approached from the standpoint of going to the Greek language or the Hebrew language. And in many cases, it was just a comparison of all of the different modern Bible versions. 
And I believe that rightly dividing the scripture, studying to show ourselves approved, is not is, is way, way more than just going to a Greek lexicon or a Hebrew dictionary. Uh, even if you mastered and spoke those languages fluently, uh, I don't believe that studying and learning the Word of God is dependent upon knowing a different language than your native tongue. Now, let me say this. It's, this is no surprise to anyone that's been around here any length of time, and that is this. We believe, and I would say I personally believe, I can't speak for all of you, but collectively as a church, as a congregation here, we believe in the infallibility and the authority of the KJV, the King James Version of the Bible. I believe we have a perfect Bible in the English language, and uh, I, I, I really try to keep from making that a contention, and uh, you know, it's one thing, and, and one thing that we try to do is we try to make sure that we use the sword of the Spirit, and that we don't just show it off and talk about it all the time. I think that certainly... Uh, you can um, you can end up just uh, basically bragging on your sword instead of using it. If we have the Word of God, then we need to read it, and we need to live it, and we need to apply it, because if it is the perfect Word of God, then it's the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Now, there are many who believe the right book, and they're saved and they're good people, but they really have no clue as to why they believe it. Now, I'm no, um, I'm no Bible scholar. I'm certainly not an expert on manuscript evidence. I've taught manuscript evidence at a Bible Institute level, uh, probably uh, three, four, maybe five different courses. And so I'm familiar with the basics of manuscript evidence, but nowhere near... I mean, manuscript evidence is something that even the men who make that their life calling of studying manuscript evidence never, uh, never ever scratch the surface or get the subject mastered. There are no masters of that uh, subject because it's just there's always more and more information to compare and there's always new discoveries and so forth. Uh, but I do believe that if we're going to believe something, we ought to know why we believe it. It should be more than just the fact that, well, that's the Bible that my my grandparents used. Uh, I think it should be more, well, that's just what Brother Wilson said that we should believe. It, we need to understand a few things about the Word of God, but one of the most important things that can help us have confidence in this English King James Version of the Bible is seeing how that all the pieces of it just fit together so perfectly. And when you start changing text, when you start changing words, you end up changing meanings because not all words are the same. When you change a meaning, then you take away a piece of the puzzle that may fit on several sides, just like, you know, people say, well, all the different English versions of the Bible contain truth. I can't argue with that. At the same token, I can say that, you know what, the Mormon church contains truth, and so does the Catholic church, and so does, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses actually teach some things that are true. But in with all of that truth is corrupt doctrine, and when we get corrupt doctrine, then uh, we get we get messed up in our Christian life. So having said all of that, I think it's important that we have 
an understanding and an overview of how our Bible works. Tonight we're going to be talking about rightly dividing the dispensations. And once again, this is our last lesson. Look with me at Ephesians chapter number 3. And and I'm going to say right from the get-go that this is a dispensational overview, not a dispensational study. If this was a dispensational study, then we certainly wouldn't be covering it all in one lesson tonight. It would literally probably take all year uh, on Sunday nights, maybe even two years to make this a dispensational study. There are so many different scriptures that are relevant to the topic at hand. But what I'd like to do here tonight is just give you an overview. For anyone listening out in, in live stream land and you're looking for some interesting nuggets and maybe Brother Mitchell is going to show you something that you've never seen before or maybe you're looking for Brother Mitchell to say something that you can argue with, uh, I, I got bad news for you. You're going to be sadly disappointed here this evening. Uh, I don't have anything profound. In fact, many of the people that get involved in serious dispensational study, I have found from experience that a lot of times they're, they're very highly involved in trying to find something that no one else has found. And I get the idea or the impression from many of these uh, Bible teachers that they're more interested in, pr- in impressing me than they are edifying me. And for that reason, a lot of times, uh, because the topic is so uh, normally used to impress, it just makes me want to do just the opposite. So anyhow, that's just, that's just the way that, that, that I process things and so no one, uh, no one is the complete package. Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and of course Paul had a special calling to the Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What did the Spirit reveal to the holy apostles and prophets? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Paul talked about in verse number two about the dispensation of the grace of God that was given to him so that he could turn around and give it to the church. This is the age, the time period that is uh, characterized by a Gentile church. It doesn't mean that there aren't Jewish people that are part of this church, but it's not specifically a Jewish church, and it's certainly not the time of the kingdom. And so Paul talks about it as a dispensation. A dispensation, according to Hebrew, excuse me, according to Webster's 1828 dictionary, is a distribution. It's the act of dealing out to different persons or places as the dispensation of water indifferently to all parts of the earth. It rains and the rain hits all of the different topography of the earth and you know, there's places in Colorado where 
I was told of a courthouse in Colorado that literally, if, if the rain falls and lands on one side of the roof, it's going to work its way down to the Gulf of Mexico. If it lands on the other side of the roof, it's going to work its way down to the Pacific Ocean. Boy, I tell you what, just a little bit of breeze could sure make a difference in someone's destiny, wouldn't you agree? And, and a lot of times our lives are very much like those raindrops at that courthouse. But the fact of the matter is, is that God deals differently. He dispenses His truth and the things that man needs to know. He does it differently in different time periods. I've heard believers say, I'm not a dispensationalist. And I would argue that point. I believe that every true believer, in one way or another, is a dispensationalist. I'll explain that here in a moment. But the dictionary also says, the dealing of God to his creatures, the distribution of good and evil, natural or moral, in the divine government. And so I'm going to give you an overview, and I've heard arguments about the dispensations. Most people, uh, I know Clarence Larkin was a great Bible teacher, uh, made some great charts. He was a draftsman, I believe, by trade before he, uh, before he became a Bible teacher. Uh, he does a great job taking a large concept of dispensationalism and making it understandable through charts and through some uh, very profound and yet simple Bible study. Uh, there are many other men who have uh, made it their forte, so to speak, in focusing on dispensational studies. And for the most part, most dispensational teachers will, uh, some way or another, claim there are seven different dispensations, time periods, if you will. And I, I've read all kinds of books by various um, dispensational authors. Some I agree with, some I don't agree with. In fact, when it comes to dispensationalism, I've yet to read anybody's book that I would say I totally agree or see it the way they see it in every aspect. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you this evening. I hope I'll always be honest, but I'll be transparent with you and say that I see some things differently today than I did 15 years ago. Some things that I used to see it one way and the Lord maybe gave me a verse or showed me something Maybe I drew a conclusion 15 years ago because I couldn't see how this verse fit with this verse. And then as I continued to study and, and grow in, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, then the Lord showed me, shed some light on this text over here. And that became a key that unlocked some of the problem texts that I had over here. And that's the joy of the Christian life that we never ever master the Word of God. Uh, listen, uh, the, the preacher or the teacher may be the bus driver, but he's still on the bus going the same place that you're going. Amen? We're all just students, and some spend more time studying than others. And God wants to use you as a student of the Word of God so that you can teach other people uh, the Word of God. And so many people, they they divide up or they rightly divide the Word of God a little bit differently. You know, our, our entire series is rightly dividing is the solution to division. 
And most of the divisions that I've seen about dispensationalism, many of them just come down to semantics. Many of them come down to, you know, like I said, the person that says, I'm not a dispensationalist. What they're doing is they're saying, I'm not like the people that I know that claim to be dispensationalists. I don't believe like they do, so I must not be a dispensationalist. Sometimes we have to think of the word, what it means, rather than making it a title or a tag that that describes everything about us. Wouldn't you agree with me that the term Baptist means a lot of things, but especially nowadays, you can go to a Baptist church and not all Baptist churches are the same, amen? You can go to a Baptist church today and, I mean, you can you can get anything from, you know, the fire-breathing Pharisee, all the way to the rock concert, and you just don't know what you're going to get. And so, you know, I'll tell you why I'm a Baptist. Because I, I believe that after a person gets saved, he should be baptized by water. I, I believe that, I don't believe in a church state. Baptists traditionally and historically did not believe in a church state. That was a very controversial thing. A lot of Baptists got persecuted back in the day because they didn't believe in a church state. And I'm talking about among Protestantism as well. Uh, I believe that if a person was baptized as an infant, then they ought to get born again as a understanding child or understanding adult. And after they get born again, they should get baptized by immersion in water again. And that that position has been highly persecuted among both Catholic and Protestants throughout church history as well. These are just some general characteristics. Not all Baptists believe in eternal security, but um, but as far as I know, most all Baptists believe in salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in works and and uh, sacraments and all of that. They believe in the gospel. They're a very evangelical group of people. And so I'm, I'm perfectly fine with being labeled a Baptist, but remember, every Baptist is not the same, and at the same token, every dispensationalist is not the same. In fact, I don't even like to refer to myself as a dispensationalist. I like to say that I believe in a dispensational application of the Scripture, And that's probably just a reaction to some of the dispensationalists that I would call hyper-dispensationalists. They don't believe in dividing the Word of God. They believe in chopping it up. And I've heard some pretty crazy things come from those people. Uh, I've heard some of them say that that a believer should not ever confess their sins according to 1 John 1.9. I've heard some of them say that John chapter number 3, where Jesus told Nicodemus he must be born again, that that's not relevant to us. And to all of that, I just say that's just a bunch of nonsense. That's not dividing, that's chopping it up, and that's wrongly dividing the word of truth. And so, because there are so many, excuse me, so many different ways that people look at it, I'm just going to share with you here this evening the, the way that I see it, an overview. And if you see it a little bit differently, fine, more power to you. Uh, no, no, no reason to argue. And, um, and once again, I'm not trying to impress anyone with something that I've found 
this is how I see God laying out the Word of God and the dispensations. And uh, even though you very likely may find something that you see it differently, I do believe from the bottom of my heart that a good portion, a good percentage of what I'm going to lay out here for you this evening is is pretty accurate and pretty fail-safe and will help you have a greater understanding of your Bible. If you understand it and you're not intimidated by the Word of God, if you're not overwhelmed by the Word of God, then there's a whole lot better chance that as you're reading those passages of Scripture that maybe a year ago you read it and you say, I have no idea what God's saying. I don't know who He's saying it to. I don't know. That sure seems to contradict what I thought was true about me. You'll be able to figure out what dispensation to place that in, and you won't feel intimidated by the Word of God. That's my heart's goal here this evening, is to remove that intimidation factor and just give you a very, very uh, general overview. All right, the first thing I'm going to give you on the screen, this first, it's not a chart, it's just a list, and I want to show you how the Word of God is divided into dispensations by a doctrinal, um, just approaching it from a doctrinal standpoint. Now, what I've got here on the screen is going to be different than what you're going to see in Larkin's charts, because I, I think that many of Larkin's charts are not dividing the Word of God up from just strictly a doctrinal standpoint. You know, dispensation, it's the, 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 the test or the dispensing. And so you'll see on my next chart that it will vary just a little bit from this chart because it's going to be approaching to the dispensations from a little bit different standpoint. All right, if you look here on the list, the first, the first dispensation is the dispensation of innocence. And in the Bible, if you, if, if you think about it just from dividing up the scripture into the dispensations, this time period goes from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3.24. It's a time of innocence. And basically, the only thing you really needed to know if you lived in that time period is you needed to know that of all of the trees of the garden, you could freely eat. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you you better not eat of it or you're going to die. Bad things are going to happen. God made that message clear. And by the way, in every dispensation, God makes his message clear for those who want his message. Well, pastor, what about the heathen in Africa? Listen, if a heathen in Africa, just like the the Ethiopian eunuch, if someone's heart is searching for God, God's going to send them a message. There will be no one... There will be no one in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. And there will be many people in heaven that deserve to be in hell. You're looking at one of them. So the entire human race deserves to be in hell. God will be good and just and perfect. There will be no fault that can be found in God Almighty if the entire human race is dropped into a devil's hell And yet God was so good and kind and gracious that he would take upon him, his son, God manifest in the flesh, our punishment 
for our sins so that we could be saved from that devil's hell. That's the grace of God. In the Garden of Eden, it wasn't a matter of grace. Yeah, there was faith, absolutely. Adam and Eve had to exercise faith because they had to trust that what God told them was the truth. And so, as we talked about this morning, they had a faith failure because the devil comes along and says, Yea, hath God said. And they began to look at it and ponder it and think about it. And they started going by what they felt and by what they saw rather than just simply trusting, Thus saith the Lord. So that was the test. That was the dispensation. And so when someone says, I'm not a dispensationalist, then we can go from the very beginning of the Bible and say, Okay, what, where's this tree of knowledge and good and evil? Is that what you're supposed to be doing, is avoiding that tree of knowledge of good and evil? We all know that we have no idea where that tree is, if it even exists on planet Earth. Personally, I don't believe that it does. Uh, my, you know, of course, obviously, the flood destroyed all of that. But that's not an issue for us. That's a different dispensation. Can I learn from that? Absolutely. I can learn a lot from the Garden of Eden about human nature and about God and about concept. I can learn so many things, but doctrinally speaking, the message is not to us. It's somebody else's mail. It was Adam's mail. It was Eve's mail. It's certainly not our mail. And then when man fell and sinned, And their eyes were opened to no good and evil. That brings us to the second dispensation. Doctrinally speaking, it's the dispensation of conscience. So from that time on, man was living by their conscience. Uh, That, you know, it was a matter of just doing what was right. There was no law. If you look here on number three on the list, you have the law that didn't show up until Exodus 20, verse number 1. And within that law, you have the Ten Commandments, you have the Levitical laws and the priesthood and the sacrifices, and you had the the holy days. You had so many things in detail that God said to the children of Israel, this is how I want you to live your life, and this is how I want your, your nation to conduct itself. I mean, details after details after details. Now, does that mean when God said in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter number 20, thou shalt not kill, does that mean that before Moses went up on the mountain and got that commandment that it was wrong for a man to kill someone else? Well, we know that Cain was punished by God because he killed his brother Abel. It was sin. It was wrong. Adultery was still a sin prior to Exodus chapter number 20. Lying was still a sin. There was still a moral code, but there wasn't a preacher that could get up and say, open your Bibles too, or thou art the man, or this is wrong because of something that was written down. Man was living by their conscience. The Holy Spirit was working. I mean, if you will recall in Genesis chapter number 6, the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man. That tells me that the Spirit of God was striving with the Spirit of man. 
And listen, I thank God that the Spirit of God strives with the conscience even today. I mean, the Holy Spirit's conviction, that's our best friend, brother and sister. It's sometimes miserable. Sometimes we just, you know, it's just, it's miserable. And and sometimes we just wish, oh God, would you just leave me alone for a few minutes? But that's the worst thing that could happen to us. And so God is dealing with man according to his conscience. There were things that were right and wrong that were yet to be revealed. And it was an entire process for the human race for God to show them through their conscience what was okay and what was not okay. And then number three, of course, the law. That goes from Exodus 20 all the way up to Malachi chapter 4, verse number 6. And then number four, uh, you won't find this. I've not seen this in a Larkin chart or in many of the dispensational teachers. This is how I see it. I see a transition period taking place in Matthew 1. And if you look here on the list, I've got a law kingdom church. If you'll recall, Jesus, when he was asked by the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what was the Lord's answer? He said, keep the commandments. And you know why that is? I've heard all kinds of explanations. Oh, that's just, Jesus was, it was a play on words. He was testing him. I believe that Jesus was answering him honestly because at that time, Jesus had not yet died on the cross. My personal opinion is that this rich young ruler probably wasn't going to make it until the cross. Nicodemus was alive after the cross, right? And what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? He said, you must be born again. But he told this rich young ruler, what saith the scripture? What's the commandments? And so, you know, he listed all the things that he had done. He left out a pretty important one. Thou shalt not covet. And I think that that's the one that nailed him. And the Lord tried to reveal that to him. But while Jesus was alive before the cross, the Gospels, it's many of the... Many of the scenarios and the context, notice I have in parentheses context, that's so important. Because some of the things that are being said are relevant to the Old Testament law in which was still in force while Jesus was alive. Yes, there's a transition period going on. John the Baptist shows up and He starts preaching the baptism of repentance, but all of it was to prepare for them to receive Jesus Christ, their King, their Messiah. And so this transition period from Matthew 1-1 to Acts 28-31, you have law going on, you have kingdom being offered, and then you have kingdom rejected, and then that transitions by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts without any question of doubt, you are full-blown in the Gentile church age, which is uh, dispensation number five, which is the church. And basically, we could say that's Romans 1.1 through Philemon 25, doctrinally speaking. Now listen, I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist. 
I believe that the Hebrew epistles are chock full of church age doctrine. But once again, there's a different emphasis because many of those Jewish writers, those Jewish epistle writers, they're also looking past the church. You know, there were some things about the Gentile church age that Peter didn't even understand and only Paul did. So it's a transition period, and then we find ourselves slap dab in the middle of the church uh, dispensation. And then from there, number six, I have listed as the tribulation period. Uh, A lot of dispensationalists take and lump the tribulation with the millennial, all as one dispensation. But doctrinally speaking, there's some major, major differences. In the tribulation period... You better accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you better not take the mark of the beast. In the millennium, it's not the mark of the beast. That's not even relevant. You're not enduring to the end if you're alive in the millennium. Basically, in the millennium, you're living according to the Beatitudes. Blessed are they. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All of the things that Jesus said in the book of Matthew... Blessed are ye, blah, all those different things which are somewhat works-oriented. That is relevant to the uh, millennial reign or the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is number 7, uh, Matthew through Revelation 21.1 within the context. Now, after Matthew, or excuse me, after Revelation 21 verse number 1, you find the Lord revealing to us, the time period after the millennium, and that's the new heaven and the new earth, the ages to come. And not a whole lot is revealed about that, but it's going to be a wonderful thing. All the old things are going to be passed away. God's going to remake it brand new, and for all of eternity, it's going to be wonderful. God doesn't reveal us to us the, the doctrine of that, because I think everything's just going to be perfect like the Garden of Eden. And death's going to be no more. The Bible says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So if it's the last one, then that means they're not going to be any more enemies. Amen? Someone once said, well, Brother, Brother Mitchell, what if, what if in, in eternity we, we rise up and do like the devil did or we mess up? It's not going to happen. Because the last enemy, death, is going to be destroyed. And so... We're not going to have to worry. Listen, there's going to be no insecurity or fear, no rebellion. It's going to be a wonderful thing into eternity. In fact, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is going to be a wonderful thing for for God's children, even those of us that are ruling and reigning on the earth. My, my, my wife and I argue about the millennial reign of Christ. If we suffer with Him, we shall reign with Him. And I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you, but this is this. I, I like this because at least she has an honest, uh, innocent approach toward what the Bible teaches. She's like, I don't want to be in charge. That's pressure. <laughs> Why would I want that? <laughs> and I have assured you that you'll want it. You'll want to be in charge, and you're going to be just fine being in charge. It's not going to be pressure. It's going to be it's going to be a joy. It's going to be a privilege. And uh, I mean, we're going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be the King's right hand men. Not going to be pressure and burden. It's going to be blessing. 
And because I told her that, she just totally changed her mindset. But this is just a general overview of the dispensations from a doctrinal standpoint. Now, uh, if you would, go to the next slide. And this is more along the line of what you'll see in a Clarence Larkin book or uh, Schofield uh, a lot of the different dispensational teachers, you're going to see something that looks a little bit more like this. You're going to see the the Edenic or the Garden of Eden, the time of innocence. Regardless of what you label it, we're talking about the same thing. And the way that God dealt with man during that time period was basically personal conversation. He's walking with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Anything that Adam needs to know, he can ask the Lord, and the Lord tells him, and that's how the Lord is dispensation, is dispensing His truth and His expectations to man. In the second dispensation, you have the antediluvian. That's the, the time period from the fall of man up to the flood. And God's dealing with men still personally. Enoch's walking with God. God speaking to Noah and telling him to build a ship or an ark. It wasn't a ship, by the way. It was an ark. You say, what's the difference? A ship travels in the water. An ark was designed just to float. Did you realize that, that the ark was just designed to just stay afloat? It wasn't supposed to go anywhere. It wasn't a sailboat. It wasn't like the, was it McDonald's? Or where was it that you used to get the plastic Ark and you could go every time you went to the 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 got the kids meal or something you got to add to it. Who remembers that? Help me out. Must have been an Idaho thing. Yeah, people in Idaho had the Noah's Ark and all the animals, but people in the Bible Belt don't. I don't. I think it was McDonald's, but anyhow, it was fun to collect all of that stuff. But you had personal God talking to man, and then you had history. So most people don't realize that it was it was really up until Adam was still alive, up until what hundred not much more than a hundred years before, a couple hundred years before the flood took place. So Noah and his father, all of those, they. They knew Adam when they were younger, and so no doubt the things that Adam had learned from God, he's sharing with them, because their lifespans were, you know, up in the 900s. And so you had all of that history being passed down uh, from man to man. And then after the flood, the the dispensational teachers call this either post-diluvian or the time period of human government. And the reason they do that is because after the flood, God institutes some order that was different than before the flood. Things such as capital punishment. He said, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so really, when you think about human government, capital punishment is the main foundational principle of human government. It's an it's the way to keep peace. The purpose of human government is to keep people from doing bad things to other people. Human government was never intended to provide all of everybody's needs. We, we have a government here in the United States, and as far as all the governments of the world, 
none of them are operating according to a scriptural basis. And the devil's perfectly fine with that because all of this world system is making everybody dependent upon the government. And that's what the Antichrist wants. If everybody depends upon the government, he's going to rise up and pretend to be the Messiah and everybody's going to be dependent upon him. And you know what? That's what the devil has to do because he has to manipulate the power because he doesn't really have enough power to do that on his own. Now, Jesus Christ doesn't need to manipulate that power. He's coming back on a white horse, his eyes as a flame of fire. He's going to have on his head many crowns. He's going to have on his thigh and on his vesture the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Out of his mouth is going to go a sharp sword, and with it he's going to smite the nations. He has his own power. He doesn't have to manipulate or pervert anybody else's power. And so that's the time of human government. After that, you have the patriarchal, the time of the patriarchs, from Abraham up to Moses. After that, you have uh, the time of Moses. You have the legal dispensation, the time of the law. And uh, that's from Mount Sinai up to the cross. And then ecclesiastical, that's a fancy word just for saying the church period. And that's from the cross up to the rapture. And then the messianic time period or dispensation goes from the tribulation to the kingdom. And so all of these are looking at the divisions of the Bible from the standpoint of how the Lord is administrating his truth. And so uh, a difference from this list to the doctrinal list, and I'll tell you how I see it. I see it that God didn't set it all out here in the scripture so that we could have a nice, neat, clean chart. I think that God just set it out in the scripture because that's the way that it is. I heard a young preacher went to an older preacher and he said, hey, brother, he said, I think I found the eighth dispensation. And, you know, this older preacher, he was very staunch about there's only seven dispensations. And, you know, this same preacher, he would combine the tribulation with the millennium, just like Larkin. And, you know, he said to this young preacher, that's that's a bunch of nonsense. There's only seven. To which I look at it, it's like, I don't care if there's three, seven, eleven. Now, I do like those slushies at 7-Eleven, but I haven't had one for a long time. Last time I had one, I think I had brain freeze for about 45 minutes, but uh, that's pretty deep theology, I know. You know, I don't care how you divide that up, if you list it as 8 or 9 or 7. I don't think that really matters. I think what really matters is that we take the Word of God and the doctrinal as well as the administration, and we just lay that out there and we understand that God is doing things differently in different time periods. And recognizing the fact that when we come across a portion of Scripture that doesn't seem to fit with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we've got to figure out, what am I missing here? Because there are no contradictions in the Word of God. And the scripture doesn't need to be changed, and it doesn't need to be explained away. Listen, I, 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 as I mentioned before, I grew up in the ideology 
that you can explain away anything that you want just simply by running to the Greek language. And you know, if you do that, you run to the Greek lexicon, you know what you do, you find that there are, there are half a dozen options of how a word can be translated. And so what do you do? You pick and choose the one that fits the theology that you're trying to teach. And now where is the authority? The authority is in the definition that you just picked. And so there is no authority. There is no absolute. It's just basically relative to whoever's teaching it and however much they know. I've heard some... Listen, the book of Hebrews, most commentaries are either devotional and, you know, if they're not going to rightly divide the word of truth, I hope that they will keep their commentary very devotional. Because because doctrinal commentaries on the book of Hebrews, without rightly dividing it, at least to some degree, like we just laid out in an overview, uh, you have to do a major Texas two-step around some of those problem texts. In fact, let's just take a look at a couple of them and I'll close tonight. Hebrews chapter number 6. Hebrews chapter number 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 4 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. If you were to take that doctrinally for us in the, the church age today, then uh, you're going to have to say that um, if you fall away, you're toast. There's another passage in Hebrews that talks if we sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. It talks about that, uh, that rest that God has for us, that we have to labor to enter into it. If we don't uh, pursue that with diligence, then we're going to fall short of it. All kinds of problem text. Hey, how about turning to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2. So what happens is we either explain away the text that's actually written. And um, which isn't always dishonest, but I, I believe is a very, very fallible approach. Uh, Acts chapter number 2. And verse number 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. The fact of the matter is, is the, the Word of God says to repent and be baptized. Now, you talk about major division over this verse, division between Baptists and Church of Christ and between all these different, uh, the, the Church of God, uh, baptized in Jesus' name only crowd. There's all kinds of divisions that come from this text as well as a number of others. But go to Acts chapter number 16. 
And once again, I, I'm, this isn't an apologetic approach. I'm not trying to prove to you this basic overview. I'm just laying it out there, and you do whatever you want with it. But in Acts chapter number 16, verse number 30, this is the Philippian jailer. It says, they brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's a similar question, not an identical question of what the people asked Peter. And verse 31, and they said, this would be uh, Paul and Silas, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. The question was very similar, but the answer was very different. Peter said, repent and be baptized. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, I'm not saying that in retrospect that the people that responded to Peter in Acts chapter number 2 aren't part of the same body that this Philippian jailer became part of. But I will say this, the message was different, and there's a transition period going on. The kingdom is still being offered. And without this understanding of this overview, dividing the difference between the kingdom and the church and then uh, the church and the tribulation period, the gospel of Matthew and the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews is going to be filled with nothing but confusion and apparent contradictions. And there aren't any contradictions in the word of God. If we rightly divide the word of truth, we can find those texts. I'm not saying that we just throw them away and say, oh, that's a different dispensation. I'm saying that we take it to heart and we learn it, and we understand it, and now all of a sudden we're secure in what the Word of God says, and uh, we can we can we don't have to ignore it or leapfrog it. We can look at it, believe it, understand it, and not be confused. And so there's our overview of the dispensations, as I've already said, uh, very incomplete, very general. Uh, I'm sure that if we thought about it from a bunch of different angles, we could list uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine different time periods, the way that God dealt with things. Certainly there's some difference from the Garden of Eden and the fall up to the flood. Certainly we can see some difference between uh, the, the flood and the law with the time of the patriarchs and so forth. Um, God's program to man was a developing program. It wasn't the same from day one up to the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Sometimes there were changes, and those changes were drastic. Mount Sinai was a drastic instant change in a dispensation. At other times, they're somewhat transitional. The book of Acts, you had people that had been baptized under John's baptism and hadn't heard that Jesus fulfilled that. They'd been serving the Lord. They'd been preaching the baptism of repentance. They come across some believers who more perfectly informed them of the gospel of the grace of God, and they responded. Some of them had been baptized under John's baptism, and they got baptized again in the name of Jesus Christ. All of that was a time period of transition Certainly from the tribulation period to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, that's going to be a pretty clear division. I mean, time period-wise, there's going to be no transition there. 
It's just going to be Jesus comes back and he sets foot on the Mount of Olives and boom, we're in the kingdom. Amen. So that's the way that God set it all out. Sometimes the revelation of God's truth is progressive and sometimes it's instant. But all of it we can see in the word of God if we'll simply rightly divide it. If we would all do what God said and rightly study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, if we will do that with a sincere heart, I'm telling you, there won't be very much room for division among God's people. We may see things differently. We may not be all identically the same, but it won't be divisive. Why? Because... We're basing it not on our guru, not our alma mater, not anything that we have to be self-defensive over. We're just simply saying, this book right here is my final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It doesn't have to be divisions over differences. The apostles didn't always see things identically. But God still said, I want you to be of one mind and one accord. If we would just obey the word of God and, uh, and stay humble and sincere, there wouldn't be all of this unnecessary division among different Christians, different groups, and, and, and only God knows how much harm to his cause has happened in this world by his people. You know, we have a, we have a, a wonderful privilege where we can make a huge difference for God. But we also have a very fearful responsibility that we can also do a lot of damage. And uh, there are a lot of people that have no use for God and the gospel, not because of God, but because what they've seen in God's people. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be uh, not one bit part of that. I hope that this series of messages, uh, Rightly Dividing, is the solution to division. I hope that you've gleaned some things from it. I hope it's helped you in your Christian walk, and certainly I hope it helps us all to have the right attitude toward people that don't see things just exactly the way that we see them. Let's all stand to our feet. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. It's been a good day here in church today. I know I've been encouraged, your fellowship, and watching you enjoy being in church today. It's just a little, little bit more and more starting to feel normal again. Amen. And I don't know about you, but I'm liking it. All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Brother Carl, uh, good to have uh, you and Sister Diane back. If you would, uh, please close us in prayer.